Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, we're so glad that you're joining us here this morning. To all of you in Bowmanville or Port Perry around the world, welcome. Well, it's less than one month till Christmas Eve, and I realized that I had not begun my Christmas shopping yet, and I have Fridays off because I work on Sundays, and my wife happened to be off that day, and so we made the decision last Friday to go shopping just to catch up, and we tend to go to Yorkdale because it has every shop on earth there, and we can sort of cover off everyone in one run, and so we were driving in. We left around 10.15, 10.20 on Friday morning, and we're driving, and I said to my wife, like, wow, the traffic is like really bad this morning, and I, I know Toronto is like the fourth largest city in North America, and I know it's growing, and, but this seems unusually bad, and so I was praying love, joy, peace, patience, so I didn't sin as I was going, and uh, we were driving, and I just said, well, what's so weird, it's Friday, it's Friday, and then it struck me. It was like a, a, a terrible moment in my life when it's not Friday, it's not Friday, it's Black Friday. It's Black Friday. The American obsession of things has come north, and I have decided to go with my wife to Yorkdale on Black uh, Friday. We couldn't turn around. We were stuck in the traffic there was no way out. I started saying to my wife, our days are numbered. The writing is on the wall. I started long texts to my child, children, Hannah, Emma, Noah. I'm so sorry. We loved you. We're not going to make it out. We were shopping for you. I promise you. And so we arrived, of course, at Yorkdale, and we parked somewhere between Mississauga and Newmarket, um, right? And, uh, and, we, and we walked 40 days and 40 nights to get into the mall. And so we finally arrived. We were in the belly of the beast, and the crowds were massive, and there were lines anywhere. No one attacked me for anything. I was really excited about that. And, and so we went in and we started shopping and we made a deal that since we were going to do a lot of shopping on one run, I would take packages back out to the car and come back and forth. So I started this 40-day, 40 40-night 40 back and forth. And so I started going out and then I suddenly feel, felt incredibly uncomfortable because people were stalking me. Literally, their car was touching my bum because they saw I had packages and I was walking and they wanted my parking spot. See, stalking is illegal in our country unless it's the holiday season. And so so I was walking to the car and, and they would walk with me for miles. They would follow me and I'd arrive and they were so excited and I opened the trunk and they're like, so can I have your spot? And they'd be like, no, no, I'm going back in the mall. And in that moment, it's like I crushed all of their dreams and destroyed them. It's like they looked at me and said, you've been leading me on. And I'm like, no, I haven't. It's you. It's not me. This is your problem. I broke up 12 times on Friday with people in the parking lot. It was so incredibly bad. So here, here's what I said to myself as I w- was walking in for the 11th time or something. I said, I knew better than this. I knew that Black Friday had contaminated Canada. I knew Yorkdale was insane. Why did I ever make this mistake? See, that's the point where we begin today. If you don't know your past, you're in trouble because you'll repeat something you don't know. But if you do know your past and you repeat it, well, you're a fool. And I was a fool. On, friend, on Friday. Nothing new is under the sun. We ended last week in Daniel 4 where Nebuchadnezzar, a polytheistic dictator of a king who had conquered multiple people, had come to personal faith in God. It reads like this in Daniel 4:34. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. And I praised and exalted and glorified the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride God is able to humble. Well, years after that moment, he died, like we all do in 562 BC. After 43 years of leadership, the greatest king of Babylon would die, just as Daniel predicted. 
Now in Daniel 5, if you've got a Bible, by the way, you can turn to Daniel 5 today. This takes place 20 years later. The time between Nebuchadnezzar and the new king we're going to explore today, Belshazzar, is filled with murder, intrigue, conspiracy, and political decline. Nebuchadnezzar, we're told by historians, was succeeded by his son, who reigned for two years and then was murdered by his brother-in-law. You think you have family problems? Wow. After a brief reign, he died, leaving the kingdom in his hands of his son, and that lasted two months before that son was killed by an assassin, and a person came to the throne that you've probably never heard of, but it's critical for us, Nabonidus. Now, now this is where the story gets interesting. Nabonidus most likely was the son-in-law of King Nebuchadnezzar. He reigns for 16 years. Now, this king did not like something at the heart of Babylon. He hated the god that actually Nebuchadnezzar worshipped, Marduk. Instead, he had given himself to another god, the moon god, and he had a vision supposedly from this god that told him to go and rebuild the temple. And so he moved 450 miles away in now what we call Saudi Arabia to rebuild this, this god's temple. And so he didn't really care about the empire. He cared about this divinity. So he decided to leave the crown prince in charge and made him co regent, co-king. Now, after years of neglect and years being away and a younger king ruling, a terrible thing took place in Babylon. The Persians invaded under Cyrus the Great in 539 BC. Now, this is where the story of the Bible and history mesh together. Two days before Daniel 5 takes place, Nabonidus, who heard an invasion took place, got an army and went to defeat the Persians, but he was defeated 50 miles from the capital. And now Cyrus turns his attention to the capital of Babylon, where Nabonidus' son is still reigning. And this is where Daniel 5 takes place. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. Now, why in the world is the king doing this? Why is he having a massive kegger when death is at the door? Well, some say he was worshiping his dad's God because that was the time to do it. Others believe he's throwing a massive party for all the leaders as a morale booster. The enemy's coming, but we're so strong and we're so safe and we have the biggest walls on earth. We don't need to be afraid. But most conclude, I would end up here too, that this is about escapism. This is a distraction to the coming death that was going to be all around them. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But no matter the reason, the largest army on earth is surrounding the city. The country is in chaos. It is leaderless. And then he calls for a thousand leaders to get drunk together at an open bar, which leads to an old word called debauchery. So you get a wild party, music, food, sexual stuff all happening, and then the scene gets darker. The king not only gets drunk, he leads his people and his leaders to do something that actually no other pagan king had ever done before. What did Solomon once write in Proverbs 21? Wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Nothing is new under the sun. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now, this is a huge breach in ancient protocol. No king, no king of any dynasty would ever use any God's sacred vessels for their own use, let alone to get drunk on. This is outrageous when scholars said even for a pagan king. But more than that, these items had been dedicated to worship the true only living God. They had been created exclusively for him. They were holy items. And yet this king is about to use them to get drunk and to worship idols and demons. Now lastly, don't forget Daniel and his friends. Living 70 years in exile in Babylon, these items are the last reminders of their life with God before the invasion. Symbols of faith and hope and restoration. And now they're going to be used to worship gods that are not God. 
So the drunken king commits and crosses so many red lines. Let me just work this out for you this way. It would be like if a group of people went into 15 or 20 Roman Catholic churches and stole the chalice that they used to serve communion in, went to a wild party, did tequila shots out of them, was dancing wildly and doing all that stuff. That's how evil this is. So as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and stone. So with the items dedicated to God, set apart, holy, to use God, now the king worships false gods. He breaks at least three of the Ten Commandments. And in the moment of sexual sin and drunkenness and escapism and bad leadership and idolatry, God says, I have had enough. The king is committing what we call the sin of blasphemy. He shows contempt from God. He lacks reverence for God. He acts like God is nothing. He declares that the God of the Jews is just some defeated God and the Jews are nothing but a bunch of people that we've basically enslaved anyway. So I don't need to fear you or your God. You're conquered. Your God is conquered. We are better. Now this is taking place, by the way, in the great throne room of the kings of Babylon. This very room was rediscovered and excavated in 1899. The court was 56 by 170 feet, was decorated by Greek columns, and the walls were covered in gypsum. Now into that moment of wealth and splendor and power and craziness and escapism, it says this in verse 5, suddenly, Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and started to write on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. Now, the king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. He was so frightened, his legs became weak, and his knees were knocking. So yelling and eating and dancing and singing and food and drunkenness, basically, it's an orgy, and suddenly a large, disembodied hand appears. Absolute terror spreads through the crowd. It's supernatural. I guarantee the king is thinking, is anyone else seeing this or just me? For one person to have a drunken hallucination or vision is one thing, but if the whole community sees it, this is a whole other ballgame. He is physically overwhelmed. Basically, it's saying in the original, he's full of knots and he falls down. This giant hand appears and begins to write, but if you read it in the original language, it's even more scary, more horror-like, because it basically says that the fingers crawl out of the wall and begin to write. Massive massive fear grips the whole crowd. And remember, these are the elite of the elite in this society. Now, this hand is the hand of God. This hand is the God of the Jews, and he's writing on the wall. Now, you need to stop and ask yourself the question, where else in the Old Testament have we seen the phrase, the finger of God or the hand of God? Well, the first one is at creation. The psalmist says it like this. Psalm 8.3, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you have set in place. God, when he judged Pharaoh, when he brought all 10 plagues on Egypt, when they would not let God's people go, it says in Exodus 8.19, the magicians, the sorcerers, those who walked in supernaturalism said that all the plagues, this is the finger of God. And then there's the 10 commandments where God actually displays who he is. See, the Ten Commandments, God didn't wake up and say, I don't like murder or lying just because I don't like it. No, they reflect who he is. And have you read how they were given to Moses? Exodus 31, 18, when God finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave them the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Even later, Jesus, God in flesh, when he came on the scene, said, you will know that the kingdom of God is among you when I cast out demons by the finger of God. In other words, the hand of God or the finger of God is the symbol of God's power, creation, life, death, judgment, freedom, salvation. 
Well, the king summoned the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners, and he said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means, they'll be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around their neck, and they will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. There's Nabonidus, there's me, and then there'll be you. See, the king is trying to control an uncontrollable situation. He says, I will give you the world if you can work this out. I've got money and position and title and honor. Do this, you've got it all. Except, of course, the hilarious thing is the Persian army is surrounding the city, and who cares if you've got gold? You're about to lose it. While all the king's wise men came in, they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became more terrified. His face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. This is profoundly scary. The enemy is at the gate. The king is drunk. A disembodied hand is writing across the large white plaster wall. The experts come in. They can't understand it. The leaders and the nobles and the concubines and the wives and everyone in between, they're overwhelmed by dread and they don't know what to do. The king is ashen white. By the way, where's Daniel? Well, at this moment, historians tell us he's at least 80. He might have been retired, but most think actually he was not welcome at this court because he was so close to the old king and the old regime. So as terror is breaking out in the middle of panic, in the middle of power plays, in the middle of idolatry and escapism and drunkenness, an unexpected voice of reason walks into the room. The queen, hearing the voice of the king and nobles, came into the banquet hall and said, may the king live forever. Oh, don't be alarmed and don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight, intelligence, wisdom, like that of the gods. And your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, who the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind, knowledge, understanding, and had the ability to interpret dreams explain riddles, solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, the queen said. He will tell you what the writing means. Now, by the way, history matters when we're reading these ancient texts. Father did not just mean biologically my dad. In king circles, they talked about lineage. In ancient times, this would be talking about the family line. So King Nebuchadnezzar was the grandfather of Belshazzar, and this queen is not the queen wife to Belshazzar. This is the queen mother, Nebuchadnezzar's wife. 20 years later, she's still in the court, still influencing. And by the way, if you read outside of the Bible, she is world famous. Herodias, the great Greek historian, talks about her and her amazing wisdom. Now notice that she uses the name Daniel. You say, well, who cares? Well, here's why it matters. Daniel's Jewish name has not been used for 66 years. And yet the queen mother uses the same. Why? Because most scholars believe she actually not only respected Daniel, she knew Daniel personally, and she herself had come close or even converted to the Jewish faith. So Daniel is brought before this king, and the king says to Daniel, are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? Now don't miss the feeling in the room. I missed it. Don't, don't miss the dripping arrogance He's basically saying this to this old wise man. You're nothing but a little slave. You're a Jew. Know your place. I'm the king and my grandfather forced you here. This is not reverence. This is not desperation. This is interrogation. You're nothing. You're a slave. And even in the midst of invasion, on my worst day, the king is saying, you're still less than me. So he says, fine, I've heard you get to do all this stuff. Is it true? Now, Daniel's response is amazing in verse 17. Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give their reward to someone else. 
Hashtag not interested. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king, and I will tell you what it means. Once again, Daniel, even at 80 years old, is at center stage. May we all be like this at 80. Giving a stinging rebuke to a king, standing for God, thriving in exile, courageous in conviction, in the spotlight, in the environment, anxiety, fear, pride, sin, idolatry, avoidance. He stands and he points to someone else. I don't want your stuff. He starts reminding the king that the God of the Jews is not just our God or your God, it's all. He is the most high God, more powerful, more sovereign, more in control, uncreated. Oh yes, there are many gods, real and imagined, but our God is God, and this God met your grandfather, and you know all this, Belshazzar. You learned this as a child. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. All the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he spared, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, man, he humbled them. But when the king's heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and he was stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people, given the mind of an animal, lived with wild donkeys, ate the grass like the ox. His body was drenched in the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. And Daniel is looking at this king and saying, you knew all of this. Why did you not learn from your history? You've scorned the mercy of God. You did not humble yourself. Instead, you decided that you would cross lines that even Nebuchadnezzar did not cross. Look at all the items you're using. Are you crazy? Do you not know who God is? You've worshipped demons and idols and got drunk and committed fornication. Will you have these in your hand? You've not acknowledged that my God, the God of the Jews, is not just a Jewish God. He is the Most High God. You have committed blasphemy. You are a mere mortal. You are here today and gone tomorrow. God has no beginning and God has no end. If there was any time for you, Belshazzar, to remember your history, it is now. Your father, 50 miles from here, already defeated. Your grandfather already humbled. And you're still marked by idol worship, blasphemy, and arrogance? He said, you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent a hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel, parson. And this is what these words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and been found wanting. Uh, Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This is my God's world, not yours. This is my Father's house, not yours. You've been shown mercy by mercy, by mercy. I have been in your court the whole time. Did you consult me? The queen mother has known my God her whole life. Did you consult her? You know Nebuchadnezzar's history. You were taught this as a child growing up with your tutors. You know this is all true. Why would you actually spit in the face of God? Belshazzar, you've never humbled yourself. God gave you so much opportunity to do this. God is love always before holy. By the way, this is where we get our two famous sayings in English. The writing is on the wall and your days are numbered. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylons, was, Babylonians, was slain. Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. What's amazing, if you read outside of the Bible, biblical literature and historical literature, on the Cyrus Cylinder, a clay tablet uh, commenting on Cyrus's building projects, it says that Cyrus himself entered the city of Babylon without a fight. The city gave up and opened their gates. 
and they did not fight at all. And this is exactly what we see in Daniel 5. Now again, let me remind all of us. Why are we going through Daniel at this moment? Because we're trying to learn as Christians how to weep and witness at the same time in our country. What does it mean to thrive in exile? What does it mean to live in a de-Christian, post-Christian, post-modern, pluralistic, multicultural, uh, global, connected world? How do we thrive when the Christian faith is less and less affirmed, less and less at the center, more and more on the margins, more and more viewed with apathy or actually hostility? Well, like I shared at the beginning of the series, we do not turn to each other. Uh, We do not look to the future. We look back to the faith of our mothers and our fathers, back to ancient times where the people of God have lived in cultures like we are now starting to live in. And we have learned so many helpful things through this series that have taught us not to run and not to hide and to be involved and to be loving and full of Christian compassion and yet not compromise on Christian conviction. And yet, let me remind us once again as a church family, the overarching theme of Daniel is this. God is not just sovereign in control. God is providential. He can step in anytime he wants. It may not appear to us sometimes that God is in control, and it may actually appear things are getting darker or more scary or more confusing, but let me reassure you, let me give you hope today. God has not stopped looking at you. God has not abandoned you. God is with you. God is with us. God is in control, and God can step in any time he wants to set things right. And this story is actually one of the shocking, most shocking stories in the Bible that reminds us of this. No matter who leads our country, no matter who leads your business, no matter who leads your family, do not forget that God holds the breath of that person in his hand. God is God and there is none like him. And why does this matter? Because we are going to be more and more in the next decade decade, tempted to give into fear, tempted to run, tempted to hide, tempted to close our eyes and our ears and our mouth and hope it all pass. It's not going to pass by, but God is sovereign. And like Daniel stood in the middle of Nebuchadnezzar's court and Belshazzar's court, we do it too. Now let me take a moment to speak not only to us, but even to the Canadian church as a whole. We're in a very interesting cultural moment. Our family and friends and neighbors and nation have not yet fully decided which way they will turn. We are truly, at this moment, living between two kings, and the church is starting to wake up in Canada and realizing it must be Daniel. We're to be Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, and we're called to be Daniel to Belshazzar. Now, we're not in the time of final judgment. We don't know what the writing on the wall is yet. We don't know what God's plan is for our nation. So we know what our job is in the middle is to personally and as a church be Daniel to friends, neighbors, family, neighborhoods, to Durham, the GTA, to Canada, and beyond. Now, hear this clearly. C4, we are only one of God's dots, and he has many of them. We're only one of God's churches, and he has so many across our country. And God's plan is more diverse and more beautiful and more larger than anything to do with C4. But also let us remember in this moment that God loves C4. Jesus is the head of C4. Jesus prays for C4, and the Holy Spirit is leading this church. Can you say amen to that? He is. So in this moment, in the in-between, as we still as Canadians who are Christians have a voice, And we don't know which way our culture will end up, like Nebuchadnezzar as a polytheistic dictator of a king becoming a follower of God or actually Belshazzar rejecting God and walking away. No matter what the decision is, our job is to stand, to speak, to love, to show mercy, to present, to call, to invite, and to serve. That is why, by the way, in this church, we are unashamed, unapologetic for our mission and our vision. 
What do we exist for? Our mission is this, to glorify God, the God of Daniel, by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. That is why we are here, that is why we exist, and that is why we will continue to exist, to call people to meet Jesus who reveals the God of Daniel fully. But also, we are unashamed about our vision that the God of Daniel, through Jesus by the Spirit, has assigned us as a community, one of his many dots, a very specific task, and many of you know it, is to become a regional church of 10,000, meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. So at this moment, what I want to do is I want to take us on a little journey. I want to speak to this whole church at this moment in all of our locations about the next major step forward directly connected to what God has asked us to do. As we live in this between two kings moment, we also are coming into the Christmas season. This season, we will have the opportunity to invite thousands of people to hear the good news of Jesus. It's going to be our largest Christmas Eve ever, and I hope you're excited. But every Christmas, above and beyond, like it's already been said, we give with excitement, full of faith and joy, and we give to something called the Vision Fund. This is the ongoing fund that helps us carry out the capital projects needed to keep moving in our God-given vision. Now, we celebrate the gift of Jesus at Christmas. We get the opportunity to sow into so many people others' lives, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And the tradition in this church at Christmas is we all give above and beyond our normal giving to three things. A kingdom-focused initiative that helps us reach our vision, the CARE Fund, and we always bless a local or global partner. Now, last year, by the way, you may not know this, our goal was to raise a quarter of a million dollars above and beyond our normal giving, and amazingly, we received over $278,000, so we can, we can clap at that. That's a, worth, that's a praise God moment. And the very first thing we were able to do is launch C4 Bowmanville. Good morning, C4 Bowmanville. Let's give them a hand. You ex- Good morning. And the stories we're hearing out of Bowmanville, people meeting God, people coming back to God. We were able also to restore our C4 Care Fund, and also we were able to bless the Pregnancy Help Centers. They launched in Bowmanville at the same time. Now, our goal this year is that we're going to raise $300,000 in the next few weeks. And why are we doing this? So C4 is more famous, so we're larger? No. We know that God has asked us to be more present in more communities, to be salt and light, to show God his ways and his love to more people. Let me say this again. We have an opportunity in this moment between two kings to reach out. So while we are in this moment, we must do all we can. So I'm going to stop preaching for a moment. I'm going to ask ushers if you could stand very quickly. And I'm going to ask right across all of our locations, every, every single person is going to receive a Vision Fund booklet. So if you can just take a moment, we'll pass them out. You can talk to your neighbor, talk among yourselves. It's okay. And then I'll come back and just share what we're going to do next. It's going to be okay. You're all like very quiet. Just pass them along as much as you can.
All right. A few last of you will be getting it in the next few minutes here. So uh, if you could take your book, please, and turn to just page four. I want to walk through with our whole family what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, The Vision Fund, specifically this year, like I said, is always rallying around three things. And the first thing is this. We are, been talking about this for months, but we are excited that we're going to be launching the fourth location of this church in Pickering in the fall of 2019. We've been praying and talking about this for a while. And why are we again doing this? So more people will know Jesus as Savior and Lord and become fully devoted. And we understand that Christians will drive 5, 10, 20, even an hour to get to a church that's connecting with them. But neighbors and friends who do not know Jesus will not make the trek. And this helps us put another church in Pickering different than the other styles of the churches there so we can invite, you can invite friends and family and neighbors to more guaranteed places of encounter. And never forget, we talked about this, one of the largest housing developments in all of Canada is being built in North Pickering and we want to be one of God's churches at the beginning of that, being Daniel in that community. Second, I remind all of us as a family that Dave and I last June hung out up here and we said our goal was not just to launch Pickering itself. In June of 2019, this coming year, we're going to gather as a whole church together and we are going to hear what we're calling plan two. The next five years, where are we going to go as a church? And I said with Dave last June to the hundreds and hundreds of you that not only live in West Pickering, but the hundreds of you that live in Toronto and beyond that drive in week in and week out, we want to ask you to start actually attending the Pickering site so you can start forming Toronto communities. Because like we said last June, in plan two, we're going out of Durham and we're heading into Toronto as a church. And so I just want to say again this morning, if you live beyond Liverpool in, in Pickering West, and that's over 165 families, by the way, that drive in every week, 165 families. I just want to say to you, get ready because we're coming to a neighborhood and near you. And not only that, as we launch Pickering in the fall, I have some also great news. We not only have uh, found our site pastor, we have hired our site pastor for Pickering. They will be getting an, er, beginning with us in early February and we'll be launching uh, together. So I hope you're excited that we're going to do Pickering together. That's the first major thing. The second thing is every year we build up our care fund. We are so serious about the physical, emotional, spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. And the care fund is how we help people inside our community that are going through a tough time. They lose a job, there's illness, they can't pay some bills, they actually don't have money for some serious counseling. We step up as a church and give above and beyond so people can emotionally and physically be helped. And this is a value that Jesus taught us and we're serious about it and so we give every single year through this fund to restore that fund to help more people. Not only that, we always want to bless people outside of us. It's always a good discipline to actually give above and beyond and also give outside. So this year we've chosen to bless our global partners in Uganda. Impact Uganda is who we work with and Jinja Connection is actually one of the outlets over there that we work with. Now their full-time deal is they're dealing with street kids living in Uganda and they actually provide environments for street kids to learn and to be creative, to get off the streets and actually build a future for themselves. This program works to find stable, permanent housing and families through relatives or other safe families so these kids get off the street and they also begin to train them. And so I just want to remind all of us today, I hope you notice that we're dealing with physical, emotional and spiritual needs of people here in Ajax, in Durham, in Toronto and around the world. 
Now, if you can look at page five for a second, under who can contribute, the vision fund is for every single one of us. We say this all the time in this church. We believe Jesus calls us to equal sacrifice, not equal giving. If you can contribute $5 a month or $5,000 a month, all gives above and beyond your normal giving is accepted and valued. I love what Reggie Joyner pointed out this week. It's okay to expect a miracle. It's not okay to sit around waiting until one happens before you do something. So don't think, well, isn't that nice for the church and pickering and everything, but actually someone else can take care of this. No, no, we say this all the time together. We're all in this together. We're one family. And you can see on page five some very direct ways that might help you evaluate how much you could give or where you could give and when you can give. So you say, well, John, what's what's the simple deal? Well, number one, I want to remind everyone again, why are we doing this? We're doing this not to make C4 famous. We're not doing this because we think a larger church is a better church. We are doing this because we have the profound privilege and opportunity as one of God's churches to keep stepping out when all sorts of churches are closing and all sorts of Christians are hiding and all sorts of... Listen, we are not going to follow that trend. We are going to continue to trust in God and step out and see many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We will step out even though darkness is coming. So in the next few weeks, one, prayerfully consider how you're going to participate in this fund, in this in-between time. And by the way, I know when a pastor stands up and says this, prayerfully consider, you're like, yeah, yeah, that's churchy language, I'll think about it. No, no, we actually mean it. Go before God and pray and say, Lord, what would you have me do about this? The second thing, decide what you're going to give. The Vision vision Fund can accept one-time gifts, recurring gifts, pledges. My wife and I, every year when we give to this, and we do give to this, we give out of our tax returns. So we actually give out of pledge. That's above and beyond what we usually give. No matter who you are, you can decide how you can do that, but we want to do this as one voice and one family. And lastly, on December 16th, as we're celebrating Christmas and getting ready for Christmas Eve, that's the Sunday that we'd ask you to bring your pledge or your gift, or of course you can do all of this online. So again, let me just end this message by saying, why are we doing this? Because God has placed us in this time in Canada to bring the kingdom of God on earth. We get to be Daniel in this moment of decision and while we have breath and opportunity and funds and resources and people, we want to do as much as we can to bring the good news of Jesus to the whole world. And as I've preached so many times, do not forget, (laughs) Toronto is the most multicultural city on earth according to the United Nations. This city, the world is here and if God touches this city, the whole world is touched overnight and we are part of that process inviting the world to meet God through Jesus by his spirit and we have been given the assignment like Daniel was to stand and do this and this what I'm sharing with you today is the next step in our God-given assignment so would you take a moment would you stand with me today if you wouldn't mind and let's take a moment all of us together from all of our backgrounds to pray over a few things so number one thank you God first and foremost that you're sovereign we need to acknowledge this Thank you, God, that you're sovereign over our families, you're sovereign over our nation, you're sovereign over our city, you're sovereign over our church, you're sovereign. Thank you, God, that you keep stepping in. We know you keep stepping in because people keep meeting you and being changed. And so, Lord, we pray at this moment right across our community, actually for our country and our nation and our neighborhoods, and we're gonna ask this boldly. Number one, we pray, God, may the people in our lives choose to be Nebuchadnezzar, not Belshazzar. We pray that many people would humble themselves and meet the true living God through Jesus. No one would ever have expected Nebuchadnezzar to meet God. He was the least likely person, and yet you chose to meet him. So we pray that. Number two, Lord, we pray that fear would not grip us, that you'd root out fear. We again claim the verse, perfect love casts out fear. 
Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit into our church to keep rooting out fear. And lastly, here's what we want to pray. Lord, we pray right now over Pickering. And we pray, God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, begin to clear a path, not just for we who are going to be there, but actually for many people to meet Jesus. Clear a path right across Toronto for many people that are going to start coming and then actually begin to set up communities that are connected to C4 later in plan two. So we pray this. Number two, we pray right now uh, for those who are struggling among us. And we pray that as we tangibly give in really profound ways, people's physical and emotional needs will be met and they will know that God loves them and we love them. Help us to be a generous people. Lastly, we're going to pray this too. Lord, we pray for Uganda right now. And we pray for all those street kids that actually have no hope and no future. And we're praying right now in Jesus' name that through the funds and our relationship, those street kids would be safe in Jesus' name, protected, educated, would be able to grow up and become the next leaders of their country and leaders of the church and good mothers and fathers and reverse the trend that's happening there. So we just pray, God, in this moment that you would do this. And lastly, we pray, not just for 300 grand, we ask for more. Would you cause a generosity in us that is unnatural, un-North American, but incredibly godly. So God, thank you for what you're doing, what you're going to do. We commit ourselves to you and your plans. And we lastly just say this, God, it's the Christmas season. Would you open so many doors to so many conversations so thousands of people could come on Christmas Eve and hear the good news of Jesus and become our brothers and sisters. Come Holy Spirit, do the impossible but actually for you, it's nothing. Come do the, the miracles we're asking for this Christmas. And we all prayed this together and loudly said together, amen. Let's sing to our Lord. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.